gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Alvin Gang from the University of California at San Francisco, who's going to talk to us about an emerging trend around the country, and that's rapid initiation of treatment and other approaches to improve retention and care. Alvin? Okay. Um, so, good afternoon. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, and uh, also appreciate your efforts to stay awake at the uh, mid-afternoon hour when some of our um, melatonin might be kicking in. So um, let me see here. Advance slides. Okay. So here are my um, uh, relationships with financial entities or commercial entities. I have none. Um, so I think uh, what I'd like to talk about this afternoon is some salient strategies to retention in HIV care. I know that this is an important issue and um, widely uh, considered a topic of, of critical importance. I want to describe the results of some recent trials examining the effect of accelerating ART initiation um, and to talk a little bit about the practical dimensions of rapid ART initiation. So um, the audience response question I think um, that uh, I'd like to pose to folks is uh, if you have somebody who is um, in the facility or in a clinic on the same day that they uh, are eligible and diagnosed for, with HIV, um, would you start them on ART on that same day? Um, so your options are this approach is unnecessarily and potentially dangerous. Uh, number two, there's evidence in diverse patient populations that this approach diminishes retention. Um, number three, I might do this in select circumstances, but logistically it's difficult. And four, I routinely practice this approach. And, and um, I guess there should be a five, which is none of the above. Um, and uh, I think there's, this is unlike some of the other questions, there's not really a, a right or wrong answer, but uh, just sort of um, uh, looks like we have low voter turnout uh, so far, although that's changing quickly. Um, great. Um, so interesting, and uh, look forward to discussing this. All right. So I think it's well recognized here that retention is a global challenge um, and that themes across settings are, are often shared, although the specific distribution of reasons is often quite local. Um, there are diverse strategies for retention and many have been tested and they largely act through what I'm going to propose as three sort of mechanisms, structural um, related to this, this material conditions of life for the patient, clinic-based uh, related to performance at a facility and psychosocial, and this is um, uh, often patient-based issues um, about their beliefs, attitudes uh, within a particular social context. And I think um, the way forward with retention is that perhaps the medical, the health systems need to do more to meet patients halfway and understand their perspectives. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about rapid ART initiation and its role here in, in potentially improving retention outcomes. So let me start with a conceptual definition of retention or what I consider a working conceptual definition. Um, it's continuous and appropriate interaction between a person living with HIV and evidence-based healthcare services. And I think a conceptual um, definition is useful because Number one, it points out that it's multi-dimensional. So it's encounters, but it's not just encounters. It's the nature and quality of those encounters that matter. This also suggests that retention is dynamic fit. So patient needs differ from each other, and patient needs differ over time. So the appropriate 
nature and frequency of encounters with uh, the healthcare system is likely to change over time as well. Most, many quantitative studies use visits as a metric of retention. And my view is that no matter how you slice and dice visits, it's a way of measuring a larger construct and not the entire concept in and of itself. So poor retention in the HIV cascade of care is widespread. So this is a, a, a stereotyped representation of the cascade. Um, there's a fall off between infected, diagnosed, linked, initiated, and, and retained and or suppressed. I don't have specific numbers here, and they do differ uh, in, in the US globally in different municipalities. But I think, broadly speaking, they're all the same. The fraction of patients who are retained and suppressed is most frequently less than 50% and often um, between 20 and 30%. And this just points out the gap. Um, retention really uh, got started to get a lot of attention. Um, you know, about a decade ago when uh, Tom Giordano published a paper in CID that showed a very clear relationship with the number of uh, quarters in which you did not have a visit in your first year of treatment and subsequent mortality. Um, and subsequently, Mike Mucavero, um, showed that missed visits in the first year have about as much of an effect on survival as something um, as profound as a CD4 count of less than 200. So retention is not optimal, and it's very important. <clears throat> so what, what are the barriers to retention? Um, one way to, to look at this is to think about this fit between a patient and the system, and to categorize interventions into things that fall into these three categories that I just talked about. Um, and and uh, although this is not, uh, this sort of resonates with, with many existing frameworks for looking at the retention problem, including um, the, the uh, model for, uh, behavioral model for vulnerable populations and other things, but it's, it's, it's um, sort of simplified for the practical user. So what, what types of barriers um, fall into each of these categories? I've taken this from a number of different qualitative studies. And, uh, in terms of psychosocial problems, um, stigma, depression, forgetfulness, substance abuse, these are all things that we're all very familiar with. Um, on the clinic-based side, you have sort of waiting times, administrative pitfalls, provider attitudes, and then on the structural side, you have things like livelihood needs and competing uh, priorities, housing, uh, food, transportation, things like that. So, those themes were actually drawn from uh, studies that looked both internationally and in the US. And, and I wanted to put up this slide here um, of two qualitative studies to demonstrate what I see to be oftentimes very uh, uh, some remarkable similarities despite the very different um, context and populations. So um, here on the, on the left is a study looking at patients with HIV in and around Philadelphia. Uh, on the right is uh, Norma Ware's paper uh, looking at patients in Uganda, um, sort of clinic-based or uh, things um, come to mind here. The first one, uh, both patients in, in Philly and in Uganda express disappointment at the fact that if you miss a visit, it's oftentimes hard to get back in. It's difficult administratively, and you have to kind of jump through systems and conform to the, to the uh, expectations to get back in. Um, there are also uh, oftentimes issues with uh, interactions with providers, and that is a source of, of, um, of problems both in, in the US here, somebody talking about a social worker that makes it seem like, makes it seems like she's doing you a favor when you go to clinic. On the right, um, a, a patient in Uganda is saying that they behave as if we're here to beg for meds. 
Um, and then finally, structural issues are commonplace as well. You don't have money for transportation uh, and you can't get to clinic. So broadly speaking, there are um, interesting uh, and useful um, uh, um, broad themes in, in, in the barriers. One thing that I'd like to throw out to folks um, uh, is that in order to get deeper, I think quantifying the nature of these barriers and quantifying how they're distributed in different places becomes um, more important. And there are some techniques that are beginning to emerge that I feel can add to our qualitative understanding of barriers. And, and, and one of them is, is, a, um, is a technique called a choice experiment. Um, and in a choice experiment, which has been used largely in, in marketing, uh, patients are asked about um, their preferences, but they're, it's done so in a series of, of questions where you take a, a hypothetical clinic with a number of attributes and another hypothetical clinic with a number of attributes, and you ask them which one would you prefer to go to. And by altering the attributes and asking the patient over and over again, you can begin to quantify um, not only how they're ranked in terms of order of preference, but the magnitude of that in a population of patients. And I think this helps us think through how to prioritize interventions, even when we know that many different types of problems exist. Um, this is an example of a choice experiment that a group that I'm involved with was uh, conducted recently. This was in Zambia. Um, here's clinic A and clinic B, um, and the categories are time you spent at the facility, distance to the facility, the supply of ARVs you are given, the times at which you could go, and the attitude of the staff at the facility. Now, each of these things has a number of different responses, and you can vary those things and ask the patient um, sort of over and over again. So this survey was applied to 272 patients who were lost to follow-up in Zambia um, across sort of a number of different clinics. And um, this is uh, an economic approach, so it's, the outcome is first stated in terms of utilities, which is kind of, um, I guess they say the translation for that word is happiness or um, how happy these things make one. So um, what's striking here is that um, one of the most important things that came out is that uh, the, the attitude of the staff. And in fact, by using a, a choice experiment, you can quantify how much one thing is worth with respect to another. And um, it may not be uh, obvious here, but the relationship between the staff attitude and waiting time is that it, it's essentially patients would be waiting to, willing to wait an extra 15 hours to go to a facility where they felt um, they felt they were respected rather than the one where they felt um, that the providers were rude. The other thing that was very important to them was the amount of medications they were dispensed. So um, the difference between a, a five-month dispensation and a one-month dispensation is worth uh, about 12 hours of waiting time for patients. So um, this helps, I think, clinics uh, prioritize different um, priorities for, for retention. Now, in addition to um, sort of understanding things qualitatively, I think so, sort of general survey results can also um, help with the uh, with quantifying um, where to focus energies. So um, let me just say uh, this also comes from a similar uh, similar setting in Zambia, um, some work that I did with some colleagues there. But uh, the bars that you see across here represent 30 different clinics. And in each clinic, 150 lost to follow patients were asked about what it would take for them to return to clinic. And their responses were coded into different categories and then grouped into things, uh, into these three categories. So clinic-based, psychosocial, and structural things. In other words, um, uh, 
um, we sort of took a large number of codes to, and, and grouped them into these dimensions. And what you see here is that there's a remarkable heterogeneity in the clinic level barriers to care or the things that the patients prioritize. So on the one hand, you have some clinics where 80% of the patients said something at the clinic would have to change for them to come back to care. On the other hand, there are some, there's one facility where less than 20% of the patients, close to 15% of the patients said that, whereas most of them um, said they would need to have psychosocial problems addressed, such as perhaps stigma and depression. And so what I think that implies is that, um, that the barriers to retention uh, are often, even though the themes are the same, their actual sort of epidemiologic distribution can be very local. And so each clinic um, needs to perhaps diagnose the problem in that particular setting. Um, and al although those data do come from, from uh, Zambia, I, I um, would like to believe that they might uh, represent something about the nature of the retention problem more widely. So um, turning our attention to interventions, I think uh, another uh, implication of this particular classification of barriers into sort of psychosocial clinic based and structural is that it also lends itself to a classification of interventions. And um, I think that we have thought, uh, for example, that psychosocial barriers need to be addressed with perhaps a broad family of interventions to, to increase patient activation. And patient activation is term that um, I think Judith Hibbard and her colleagues really promoted, but it's the idea that um, the patient understands their disease condition, understands what needs to be done uh, to be healthy, um, it feels like they have the skills and uh, ability to do so and is able to do so under duress and stress and, and maintain it. Um, and, uh, and I think, so counseling, motivational interviewing, peer support, many of those things are all geared towards creating patient um, activation. So clinic-based barriers obviously need to be addressed with a different family of interventions, perhaps managerial interventions that are geared towards performance improvement. And then finally, I think structural barriers um, are handled with interventions that, um, that increase access and seek ways to routinize care in livelihood, in, in, this, in the context of livelihood demands of patients. And I'll get into specifics a little bit more in, in a moment. Um, so it's worth saying that there are guidelines for improving retention in, 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 in care. And um, the International Association of Physicians and AIDS Care uh, has issued these guidelines. Um, and uh, we won't go through all of them. There are a lot of them. There's 37, uh, as a matter of fact. And they cover a wide range of topics. Um, and this is worth, I think, reviewing. Um, since we won't have time to go into each of these things, I thought um, I could just group some of them together and then highlight a few that I sort of for very unscientific and biased reasons feel um, might be emblematic or, or useful to discuss. Um, before I do that, I just want to point out that um, you know, we, I sort of um, scored each of the interventions suggested in the guidelines into one of the three uh, dimensions here, and some of them overlap. But um, I think it's worth pointing out that for the most part, uh, they do focus uh, more on, on psychosocial and patient-based interventions, changing the way that patients think and behave, um, whereas less, fewer of them are structured around changing the system uh, to, uh, and perhaps um, that might be uh, an, an area of uh, potential um, uh, further further interest. So, um, let me see here. Twenty minutes. Um, so I, I think 
structural intervention, so access. Um, we just talked about buprenorphine, uh, um, a, a, a typical structural uh, an intervention that reduces the burden uh, of healthcare utilization on, on patients who may face barriers to healthcare is to integrate the services. And I think um, that's been widely championed in resource limited settings, but also uh, has been shown to increase um, things like retention in, in our setting um, in patients who need those things. I wanted to point out a very interesting uh, study that was published in 2015 um, from Sherry Weiser and her colleagues using livelihood support in Kenya. And in this case, the idea was that um, the, the model was that if you increase income, uh, that will help you get to clinic easier, but it also increase your standing in, in, in your community and perhaps diminish stigma that, diminish stigma that way. And um, so they did a, a cluster randomized trial. It was a small trial, um, uh, but they, they, they offered participants um, a pump uh, education in sustainable farming practices in a loan. Um, and, and it actually improved virologic suppression. Um, the patients who received the inter intervention were 79% suppressed versus 67% suppressed. And that was a difference that was uh, statistically significant. And I, I think, um, and I'll get into this a little bit more later, but as we think about broad themes, th these sort of development um, interventions um, uh, might have uh, sort of broader implications, um, you know, outside of the setting of, of rural Kenya, give us an opportunity for um, some food for thought there. Uh, but there are there are sort of other things that fall into this uh, type of category um, that uh, are listed on on the right here, but which we won't go into. In terms of psychosocial interventions, I think that. Um, this is bar borrowing a heuristic from uh, Trish Greenhalgh, but there's different ways you can you can promote this. So on the one hand, you have sort of let it happen, which is the most passive way, maybe, um, and then help it to happen. More active ways of promoting patient activation. So I, I would put um, uh, Lit Gardner's um, study using information provision at the clinic. Sort of, it's important to make your clinic visit uh, posters things like that as a, as a let it happen, more on the let it happen end, but even things like that did improve retention by a small amount. Um, one thing that's been used very extensively in resource limited settings and, and perhaps not enough here in, in the US is to, is to start to use um, SMS technology to create um, um, a, a connection to care and patient activation. And, and, I, and I use this specifically for patient activation. SMS is often thought of as a reminder. It's called a reminder. Um, I think there's very good evidence that they don't act as reminders because reminder devices uh, such as alarm clocks and things like that have been shown in meta-analyses not to be particularly efficacious. SMSs work because of the messages that they contain. And um, in many studies, people sort of are taking a mixed methods approach where you try to understand what the patient community wants to hear and then try to deliver those messages to them. And they're usually about a connection. They're usually about things like um, that, that you've missed a visit and we care that you've missed a visit rather than something like just an alarm to remind you. And then finally, help it happen. Um, I think interventions really, when they can be afforded, the face-to-face -face interactions with patients um, probably have the greatest effects but are most difficult to generalize because they, they do take um, more effort. So um, I'd like to talk just about, um, I think I'll just focus on one because time is short here, but um, multi-mechanistic intervention. So, so if 
I think some creative, there have been some creative interventions that try to hit all three of these things, that try to activate the patient to make it easier for the patient to, to, to receive care in the setting of uh, resource constraints, but also, it also makes the clinic experience better. So one of these is, um, was originally reported in 2011 in, in JAIDS and subsequently have, has been reproduced in other settings, but it's called a, it, they, they call it a community adherence group. And this is where six patients who live in the same community get together and they rotate. So one person goes to clinic each month. That person picks up medications for the other six. That person gets a CD4 count and other monitor monitoring. And, they, and, and so this achieves three things. Number one, you're more likely to be adherent to your visit if your friends are counting on you. Number two, it cuts down the opportunity costs of patients going to clinic. So in the past, in this setting, patients had to go to clinic every month. They, they, so they cut that um, uh, from 12 visits to two visits a year. And finally, that decongests the clinic. And the theory is that by decongesting the clinic, the providers will have um, sort of time and energy to focus on the issues that matter and, and sort of reduce burnout. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, you know, this, is a, this is an example of something that works really well in rural settings in Africa. Um, I'm not saying that this would work well in San Francisco or, or in Atlanta, but um, it, it, I think it provokes some thought about, can we be creative about um, using uh, social relationships perhaps to, to advance the, the retention um, in care agenda? So before I get into um, the rapid material, and, and uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll just be very quick here, but the, the future directions for retention, I think it's important to quantify barriers locally. I think crosstalk between international domestic studies is increasingly important. I think adaptivity at the individual level might be a way of achieving both effectiveness and efficiency. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, we, I've been involved in a lot of studies looking at tracing, and so one uh, perspective is that the patient who is out of the system is the key to improvement of the system um, by finding, what, finding out what's going on with them. And finally, we've talked about interventions to the health system. I think the harm reduction approach makes a lot of sense for patients in, safety, in the safety net setting in the US and also internationally um, where you'd like them to make all their visits, you'd like them to pick up their drugs on time, but in reality, they're not going to. And so we need to design systems that accommodate that rather than make, it, rather than make things sort of like punitive when, when, when people are unable to meet their, um, their, what both they and the system expected them to do. Okay, so rapid ART initiation rapidly in less than 10 minutes. Um, uh, two, Case studies here, I'm just going to go through the first one very quickly. 45-year-old man in San Francisco, recently diagnosed. Um, he's given a referral from the place of testing to the clinic. He shows up. He's seen by eligibility social work. There's no contraindications. Next steps. Um, how soon should ART be offered in an asymptomatic patient with high CD4 counts? Um, what are the implications of delay? And then um, what kinds of factors might influence those implications? So here's some theoretical pros and cons of rapid ART start, including on that very same day. So for, for potential pros, you could argue that this is gonna streamline, streamline processes. It clears up communication in messaging for the patients. You get an early jump on counseling. Um, for individual patients, you might get better retention and care. Um, you could reduce the reservoir, you can minimize transmission. For the cons, this could be very labor intensive. And then there's questions about safety. What about transmitted drug resistance? What about your creatinine? What about um, things like that? And there's also the concern that it could actually worsen retention. Now, this is, again, taken from the international setting, and I don't know of exactly comparative data uh, within the United States, but even among patients who are eligible and in clinic, 
we're not that good at getting them on treatment. And so this particular uh, paper from 2011 um, um, suggested that only about two-thirds of patients who were eligible and in clinic got started. So that's obviously a big missed opportunity. So number one, is there any ev evidence that the act of putting somebody on ART improves retention? Uh, this isn't an easy question to answer, but um, Jacob Boyd and his colleagues in 2015 presented a, a clever analysis using this concept of regression discontinuity, and this is how their logic worked. If you come to a clinic and this treatment threshold is 350, the people just above 350 and just under 350 are actually the same. But because of measurement error in CD4 counts, they, on that particular day, were given the 350 or 360 or, two, or above or below the threshold. So they looked at people with CD4 counts right around that range and looked at what happened them, to them in terms of retention. And so eligibility increased retention by approximately 20%. So eligibility alone. Um, so what they then found was that um, they used this regression discontinuity um, to, to enable uh, a, a sort of an instrumental variable analysis. And, and um, sort of without going into the details of that method, they suggested that the people who started uh, ART only because of their CD4 count was below eligibility um, um, were retained at a 70% higher rate than the people, their counterparts, who would only have not started ART just because their CD4 count was above that threshold. So there is some evidence, and this is from South Africa, that that, um, that starting people retains them. Now, there's also evidence to the, to the contrary. I, I think uh, the B-plus story, I think, is, is probably well known. Um, there was a, a move um, to, to start um, pregnant women in, in, in resource-limited settings on triple therapy um, on the same day that they presented because uh, to minimize risks of vertical transmission. And at least in, in Malawi, uh, even though they were successful at getting people on treatment, um, women who started treatment in that particular setting for that reason tended to become laws to follow up more than, than women starting for clinical reasons. Um, and that has been a source of great concern. Um, this sort of mixed data has motivated a number of uh, randomized trials, and I'm going to go through um, uh, three of them very briefly. And if, so th there are th at least three randomized trials that look at this question. So the first one that was published was just last year, Rosen et al. in PLOS Medicine, um, South Africa. Uh, at the time, CD4 threshold 350 for starting. Um, the rapid initiation arm received a point-of-care CD4 count, um, a point-of-care tuberculosis test, point-of-care blood test, physical exam, counseling, and ARV dispensing the same day that they presented. The standard initiation arm did the normal procedures, which was sort of three to five visits over two to four weeks. Um, they enrolled 377 patients, um, typical of the clinical and sociodemographic uh, composition of, of uh, the, the setting in South Africa. So on the left here is the, is the instance of ART initiation. So, um, as expected, the rate of ART initiation was much higher, but also the total um, the fraction of people ever initiated was higher in the same day start group. And on the left here, you see some of the outcomes. So the first row shows um, initiated within 90 days and suppressed at 10 months. Um, and there was a statistically significant um, difference here, um, 51 versus 64%, about 13% uh, risk difference. Um, and I think uh, there's a couple of other results here, but th this is the sort of top line finding. More people on ART, more people suppressed. Um, 
there's been a paper that was, uh, uh, has not yet been published but was presented at the IAS last year um, in Haiti, a similar uh, study, uh, adults stage one and two, um, CD4 count less than 500 who passed a readiness questionnaire, which, uh, which excluded only seven patients. Um, and they, uh, um, <clears throat> they reported an analysis of about 560 patients. And in this particular study, um, the, the obviously more patients initiated ART, um, but fewer patients died during the course of uh, the, the study. So a mortality-only endpoint was statistically significant, um, as was an in-care with a suppressed viral load. So same-day ART in this setting um, reduced mortality and increased uh, both retention and suppression. Um, these studies were randomized trials conducted in resource-limited settings, and randomized trials recently have been, or individual randomized trials have been critiqued for um, having uh, perhaps not enough, um, uh, being too different, too, too much of a laboratory setting to be, to really extrapolate easily into the real world. So uh, this is a study that was done by Amaniri and colleagues, um, and um, I was a part of this study team where um, uh, patients were cluster randomized to um, uh, an intervention um, to recalibrate the healthcare workers' uh, risk balance, um, risk-benefit uh, um, considerations when starting ART. So this study, this study did not say you have to start or you're supposed to start on the same day. It said, look, here's a CME done by an opinion leader um, about the risks of not starting, which include loss to follow-up. Um, and also followed up with uh, a point of care CD4 count and a reputational incentive. So clinics got to see what other clinics were achieving. Um, and it was, stepped, it was a stepped wedge randomized trial um, of about of 12,000 patients total. And um, I think uh, I'll just bring your attention uh, very briefly to the curve on the left, which shows that it increased the rate of ART initiation. So 70, approximately 70% of patients initiated on the same day. And, um, and the total fraction initiated was higher, um, and in, there was no difference in, viral, in, in, in the viral load outcome at, at one year if a missing equals failure analysis was applied, but there was a difference in the um, as measured or um, sort of as treated analysis. So um, even more rapid here uh, is um, a brief discussion of the rapid, initi rapid ART initiation in San Francisco. So what I just talked about was sort of in resource limited settings. San Francisco has a getting to zero campaign, uh, zero infections, deaths, and stigma uh, that has been going on for some time. It's a multi-sectorial volunteer effort. Um, it's uh, uh, academia, government, NGO, community activists, and it uses this notion called collective impact. And that's something that I think um, uh, people think about civil society and social action have been um, have have been focused on this idea that uh, sort of um, that there's no silver bullet for uh, implementation interventions, but but uh, collective action is, is sort of um, an alternative to that. Um, so there are four initiatives within getting to zero. One of them is rapid start, and um, the goal here uh, is to is to is is targeting newly diagnosed patients. Um, as well as HIV-infected patients who are known to be HIV-infected but re-engaging in care. And the goal is to start within 48 hours um, for anybody with uh, sort of an OI, CD4 count less than 200, or early acute infection, and then less than five days in all other patients. 
Um, so initially this was done at San Francisco General Hospital. The in results were reported in JAs in 2015. Um, and this shows the curve of people starting at 0, 1, 7, 30, and 90 days after uh, presentation. And um, the RAPID program was sort of successful at getting people on treatment very quickly. Um, and this led to more rapid suppression of, of, uh, of HIV RNA replication. Um, and since that time, the, the procedure uh, has been taken citywide. And here, um, I think that the resolution on this um, isn't uh, great, so my apologies about that. But, but essentially, at, at your testing venue, um, at the time of testing, you get counseling education, and then if you have a if you are able to treat at that facility, uh, there have there's been detailing to um, promote uh, rapid ART initiation at those places like Kaiser. If you don't, if you can't treat because you're just a testing facility, there's a number you can call, and it's a it's essentially like a hotline who will link you to a facility that will treat you, um, and uh, the patient will show up. Um, they'll get uh, various, um, they'll get counseling eligibility and those things. There's a medical provider, San Francisco General, there's a pager. Uh, the ID consult holds the pager. So if there's a new patient, new diagnosis, um, you get seen that same day um, by the physician on call. Um, and ART is dispensed uh, that, it, there's a starter pack of ART that's dispensed on that day. Labs are sent. Genotype, to Dimitri's point earlier, is drawn, but we feel that um, you can safely start uh, regimens um, including sort of regimens based on dolutegravir and TAF that are safe enough to not um, be contingent on um, the return of, uh, of those labs. Um, the patient gets rapid follow-up after that. Um, so uh, this is, the, the, the Getting to Zero website is, 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 there's a website and all this data is public. I just downloaded this from the website a couple days ago. Um, so this just shows the fraction of, the time from, um, uh, getting to care and ART initiation uh, in 2013, 14, 15, and, and 2016, um, and up till the middle of 2016. And essentially, you can see the gray is the part is the represents is the essentially zero to two days within 48 hours. That fraction has grown from somewhere in the range of 20% to um, probably 50%. And the patients who are starting after with greater than seven days uh, has diminished from sort of 60% to the range of sort of 20, 25%. So what about the patient perspective? I think this quote is very telling, and it comes from a brochure that's used to detail um, some of this. And, um, and just bring your attention to the last, last sentence here. You know, he says, taking the medication didn't feel, make me feel I was terminally ill. I was prepared for a lot worse, and it was very simple. Um, and I think that uh, there, there are, this hasn't been sort of formally studied, but the prevailing view is that it's very acceptable um, to the patient population in the community. And whereas there, used, there once was a time where people felt that starting medications um, sort of marked uh, a, 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 a particularly sort of stigmatizing state of, of the infection, um, that perspective is, 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 has very much changed um, and, um, and I think is reflected in this, this quote here. So just um, uh, a few uh, brief conclusions. Um, sort of diverse evidence-based strategies for retention exist. Um, rapid ART initiation can enhance retention outcomes in public health settings. And I think, um, I think uh, the, the operative word is, here is can, and I anticipate we'll have some discussion about uh, exactly what that translates into. So I'd um, like to thank uh, a wide variety of colleagues and uh, 
and you for your attention. Definitely emerging area. Cause. Was this uh, initiation of treatment also measured in inpatient? Did I miss that part? It mentioned a hospital, but I don't know if it was. Keep going. Hello? The mic here. Looks like I probably just need to speak up a little bit um, or get closer to the mic. So good, good question. I mean, I think the, the, the original, so the rapid sort of thing was designed for the outpatient setting. There was, all, we, in San Francisco, at least at the general, we had an, a protocol for inpatient rapid ART initiation, which I didn't actually talk about today, but that's a very good clarifying point and I should uh, distinguish those. Um, I think the, 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 the sort of rapid initiation in patients who are inpatient um, really started after ACTG 5164, which was, um, I think, published in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, sort of a little bit earlier than, than this effort among outpatients. And, and, and a second question, is there any data on resistance on the cohorts that were not retaining care? Resistance on the cohort not retaining care. Um, in, in the various studies? Um, you, so that's a very good question. I have not seen any resistance data for, from the rapid study that was in South Africa or the, the study in Haiti. Um, the one that was done in Uganda, uh, likewise, was um, we ha it, it sort of viral loads were done, but there was no resistance uh, as testing. Sorry, so I've got lots of small questions, but I think you, I, I loved your picture from the clinics in Zambia on the retention that the barriers are quite different depending on the location. I would flip that now over to the early start. And I can imagine that in San Francisco where you've got a fairly informed public, right, about HIV and, and I suspect just from what I know of folks there, people sort of kind of know that they might be at risk, they hope they don't get it, and then, oh, well, I'm found to be infected. So when they get told they're infected, it's not like out of the blue totally. And they say, yeah, 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 now that I've got it, I want to get something done about it, right? So that's like the prime thing. But we're living in a different neck of the woods, if you will. And I can't speak exactly for Atlanta, but I can speak for Birmingham and say, for a lot of the patients that we see, that first diagnosis is a, you know, it's a kick in the pants. They, a lot of people never saw it coming. Um, they just are blown away by just the diagnosis. And I don't know, and in South Africa, it's kind of the, it's kind of more like San Francisco in a way because it's so prevalent, everybody knows somebody. So how do we evaluate, I guess we're gonna have to do studies here to see how the local environment was, but just projecting this out on the population, I, I'm just worried that if we say, okay, oh, by the way, you're HIV infected, and here, here's a bunch of treatments we can do, here's a bunch of pills, goodbye, see ya. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I so that's an, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. One of the sort of, quote, one of the sort of pet peeves that I have with some of these 
with like a randomized study looking at same day start and not is that same day start is actually not an exposure it's the outcome of an interaction with the patient and i think it's if in the real world it's important to realize that in order to start somebody it's a product it, it Ideally, it's a decision that you come to together. Yeah. And the distance between here and that decision is going to differ from yeah. place to place. Um, but that said, I do think that a lot of this has to do with how we talk about it. And as providers, how we um, sort of steer the conversation. And, and, and you know, I think, um, I, I think sort of many people have had this experience, you know, sort of you're on the consult service, you get called, uh, the residents say, okay, we all talk to the patient about medications that they, he doesn't want to start. And then you go and talk to the patient and like they want to start. So it, it, a lot of it depends on um, how that conversation is approached. Yeah. But certainly there's a big difference, that, that distance that's got to be covered is going to be different. I'm really glad you said that because uh, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So that it it's not, doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all thing for every patient, right? So you could, we have, for example, in our clinic, we have intake, and that's oftentimes without a primary provider. It's with the social service staff, other support staff, and they go through, the, they get the patient ready for the clinic, and that's really improved our, our um, linkage to care enormously. But I could see where they could present to them, you know, not only do we have all this for you, it's possible if you wanted, we could start therapy today, we can put it off. What would you like to do? And I think that makes some sense. I, I get that. I think that really works. Carlos. So thank you, Owen. This, is, this was very valuable. Uh, I mean, I think that yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that we've been sending patients wrong messages in the sense we tell somebody, you have this really bad disease, you have this really bad diagnosis, and if you had a UTI, we'll give you an antibiotic today, but if you had this really bad disease, but we'll see you in clinic in three months. So we're, we're, not, we're sending some very weird messages. So you can see the National Strategy, the first one said, would link it to care within three months of diagnosis. Now it's talking about a month after diagnosis. I still think it's way too long. Yeah. Here in Atlanta, in our strategy at Fulton County, we made the commitment to get you into care within 72 hours of diagnosis. And we're, we're trying to implement in our clinic rapid uh, ART, and it's not from diagnosis, it's from, from the time you hit the clinic. Mm -hmm. And again, what we found is from the time you hit the clinic, we, we had every single possible barrier to why we wouldn't start you, right? Mm -hmm. You need to have your ID, you need to have this, your financial clearance, your blah, 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 blah. And, and we've kind of this, this sort of blown up that system and said, let's make it a opt-out approach. You know, you come to clinic, we'll get you seen and we'll get you started on therapy, unless you say you don't want it. And the great majority of providers and the great majority of patients want that because there's a sense of you're doing something for me, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, you're trying to prevent me from getting something out of coming to care. So it also creates a different relationship between the patient and the clinic in which we care about you. We're gonna, you're gonna leave the clinic with something in your hand that's gonna help your disease. I suppose you're gonna leave the clinic with a list of things you need to bring so we can continue seeing you yeah. in the clinic. Yeah. So I think it's also changing the, the discourse and the conversation. But what has required to do as number one step is convince people like Ryan White and others that all the paperwork and requirement that they needed could wait. And I think that a lot of these barriers are structural and administrative mm -hmm. that we, honestly, we need to blow up and just say, this doesn't make any sense and let's start from the beginning. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with, with you more. I, I think that, you know, when, when a patient, especially with a new um, diagnosis, interacts with the healthcare system, everything we do is telling them a message, whether we say it or not. And, and the idea that you have a, 
you have something really bad, we have a treatment for it, but we're not going to offer it to you until some later time after some other sort of unspecified conditions does send a mixed message. And, um, and I, you know, I just want to point out in that study in Uganda, we didn't, where 70% of the patients in the intervention arm started on the same day, the, the, there was nothing in the protocol that said that the patient should start on the same day. The, pro the protocol said, essentially, each patient should be assessed, and if there's no barrier, it should be offered. And, um, and in that setting, I think 70% is probably right. Maybe the other 30% had some major issue that precluded starting from that same day, but the systems shouldn't get in the way of that. Yep. Real quick question and answer, Andrew. Just a comment uh, that uh, seems to me we're trying to get the same intervention to answer two different questions. One question is how do we most effectively prevent further transmissions? And that's getting therapy as rapidly as possible, presumably, although some people or different population groups will have different risks for continuing transmission. And the other is how do we achieve a patient who's stable on therapy over a long term? And beginning with the end in mind is usually important in this regard, and it speaks to the flexible approach that you've just discussed. Yeah. Great. I think we're out of time. Thank you, Robin. Great job. Covered a lot of material. All right. Our anchor leg.